So good morning, everyone. Happy Independence Day. Um, like Brad, uh, I love our country. I thank God for our freedoms. Uh, we were designed, we were created to be free. Uh, that's how we uh, know uh, ourselves most truly is to see, our, see ourselves free uh, from all external encumbrances and internal encumbrances, and yet devoted to God, made for Him, submitted to Him. So I thank God more for our ultimate freedom. If you want to be free, there's only one way to be free indeed, and there's not a state on the earth that can grant that, and that's through Jesus. So very grateful for our freedoms. Um, as you know, if you've been around for a while, we're in Ephesians 5, 1 through 14, and if you've been around Lifeway for a while, what we normally do is we just pick a book in the Bible, it's God's Word, and we just go passage by passage by passage, and then we preach, um, you know, whatever is next. And what we tend to do is we tend to highlight the main theme of whatever that next passage is, which is uh, sex. So that's the title of the, I was, you know, you can do a nuanced title, like um, something, what's, what's the big idea, the thesis, but I just think we're probably better off just breaking the ice. I knew I was going to need to do that at some point. The title seemed to be as good a place as any. If we get to the end of the talk and you're like, what did he talk about? Then I really made a mistake. The reality, though, is it's never just sex. Um, and it's Bible passages uh, on sex go, like I said, we're Ephesians 5, 1 through 14. This one's pretty tame. It's blunt, but not specific, you know, maybe think PG-ish. Uh, there are passages that are way more uh, explicit on this, at which, which means if somebody says, hey, you know, I think the Bible is boring, uh, what they're really saying is, I don't know how to read. Um, but the, this passage isn't that. It's, it's blunt, it's not particularly specific, but it's incredibly helpful. And I, my prayer is that you'll even find it inspiring. All right, so what are my qualifications? Because if we, if we, assuming we do need to talk about it, and we'll talk about that, do we actually need to talk about this? Assuming that we do need to talk about it, who am I to speak? You know, you want to make sure you're in good hands uh, this morning uh, because you can't just trust anyone. Lots of ideas about sex out there and so forth. Well, what are my qualifications? What's, what's my CV? Um, and early in my life, I spent a lot of time in locker rooms. Uh, and, you, and you learn a lot in locker rooms. Uh, it's mostly wrong, uh, but you, do, you hear a lot of things. I have had my own personal temptations and failures and successes. Uh, I'm no... No different. My assumption about you this morning is not that you're okay. My assumption this morning on good ground is that we're all messed up. And so I know that from my own personal experience. I've been a pastor for years. And uh, in my office, whether that's on the phone or literally in my office or just passing by, it's amazing how often this everyday aspect of life comes up and what a powerful indicator it is of how somebody's doing. You talk to a single person just trying to walk uh, a life devoted to Jesus, and one of the indicators on how they're doing is sexual purity. Talk to a married couple. How happy are they? What are they navigating in their, life, in their lives? Usually, uh, uh, sex comes up as an issue that's an indicator of something pretty profound. Uh, there's a reason for that. 
But so I've got years of experience as a pastor talking to people about this, you know, my own failures, uh, the, learning from the own, uh, you know, what I see as the lies out there and that sort of thing. But the real reason, you know, let me give you my big qualification this morning. I'm a Bible guy. God makes himself known in his word. God tells us what is clear and true in his word. And we're just going to keep our finger in the text. And so normally, whether it's, whether it's politics or the way you live or, you know, your freedom or whatever, if I irritate you, I don't mind that at all so long as I've got my finger in the text. And this morning, I plan to have my finger in the text. So let's read it together. Ephesians 5, 1 through 14. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, uh, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them. Do not participate with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that is visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, I ask for your help in this moment um, that I'll, I'll speak with love and clarity and courage. I pray that everybody in this room uh, will be poised by, by the work of your Spirit to receive your Word and regardless of anything else, to submit their lives to Jesus and to live for His glory. You know, that's where freedom is found anyway, and uh, we ask that you do what only you could do, not, not some, you know, weak preacher, uh, not some effects, but only your work can transform a person. And so we pray as we open your word and we see it as true that you'd help us in this moment. And bless us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So let me just start with the first issue, okay? Do we really need to talk about this? Because this comes up sometimes. That, you know, I've been doing this for you know, a couple of decades now. And sometimes whenever we talk about something or we raise it as an issue, somebody will approach me after this, the service and say, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if we should like, talk about that. right? Because it could be uncomfortable or you know, maybe not everybody's ready. And there are all kinds of subjects like this. One of, one is uh, predestination, for example, or wrath or something like that. And the point is, is if we believe, and we do here at Lifeway, if we believe that this is God's word, and so that he knows everything, and he's perfectly good and totally wise, and he makes himself known to us to receive his word, then what's in his word we ought to explain. We ought to try to understand it and submit ourselves to it. 
So what is it when this issue, it's something that comes up a lot in God's Word, which makes sense, it's a relevant thing because it's a part of everyday life. What is it that we see in the passage that would make us go, oh yeah, this is a topic uh, that we should talk about. The world is talking about it. You wouldn't be here this morning without it, and so on. Why should we talk about something so relevant and common as this? Well, one is witness. Uh, you see it in verse 3. He says when he's talking about sexual immorality, and it's a broad term, um, he says this is the kind of thing that shouldn't even be named among you. Talking to the church, right? People who say, I believe in Jesus. I've, my life is submitted to him. I'm going to live my life for Jesus. When it comes to the issue of sexual immorality, he says this isn't the kind of thing that ought to be even named among your ranks. He's talking about our reputation. Like, what are you known for? It's a really good question. Because, you know, sometimes we, we think we know ourselves, but... What are you known for, and is that a good thing to be known for? It's a, it's a good question. And what he's saying is, this is not something that you should be known for. It doesn't mean, uh, you know, it shouldn't, shouldn't even be named among us. It doesn't mean it's never something that happens in the church. Uh, just read New Testament, you know, the New Testament, the letters that Paul wrote. It doesn't mean that we don't welcome any who want God. We want you, I'm glad every person is here this morning, I want you to know God. I want you to have a great relationship with God. But it does mean at least it's not a small thing, we should never treat it as such amongst ourselves, and I'm talking in particular members of the church. Somebody at this point might go, well, shouldn't we extend grace? Shouldn't we extend grace? Yeah. Absolutely. But you know what? Grace assumes something. Grace assumes that a standard has been violated. Otherwise, you wouldn't need it. Right? Absolutely, we should extend grace, but we should extend grace because we recognize that there's a problem there. Um, so back to witness. He says, Paul says, listen, when it comes to sexual immorality, this is something in the church that shouldn't even be named among you. We'll be ineffective witnesses, or the church will be, have an ineffective witness as a whole if our lives contradict what we say. If we worry way more about broad cultural trends that we don't commit ourselves to at all versus personal purity. So just, you know, if, if I'm 400 pounds of Twinkies and laziness, I'm not somebody who ought to be giving you advice on fitness and nutrition. Right? And fairly so, you wouldn't look at me and go, well, yeah, I mean, that guy obviously knows what he's talking about. You can't live for yourself, including sexually, and expect to speak for God in a way that people take you seriously. And God does expect us to speak for him. Right? So one is witness. Two is worship. He talks about all these things that come up in verse 4. And he says, rather than this, you know, rather than sexual immorality or covetousness or the way you speak, be thankful Instead of all that stuff, there ought to be gratitude. And he's talking there, you know, particularly about sex. Sex is not then an enemy to fight off. Now, everything uh, that you uh, can do to kill yourself with it is, you know, so there, fight. But if you deny sex on the basis that it can be perverted, it's an old argument, what do you have in your life that doesn't fall under that category? 
Yet, food? That's a good thing that's given. Can that be distorted? Oh, yeah. What about relationships? You know, what, what you think is love sometimes is idolatry, where you put the whole weight of your person and your soul on the other person as though they could bear it. Think relationships and even love can be distorted? Oh, yeah. What, what about discipline? What about health? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there are people on a quest to be a god. If, if there's, this isn't gambling, if there's money on that, I will take it that you fail. You're going to die. What about work and career? See, everybody has an ark. You're going to come back down. Even the greatest kings in history have done that. What do you have in your life that can't be perverted or distorted and become demeaning? Something that is an idol. You can't deny sex on the basis of that. So listen, sex is a, is a gift to be grateful for. Think of all the good that comes from it. you got intimacy, you got babies, spoiler alert, pleasure, and so you think, well, I don't know, like pleasure, I don't, like, I don't know if we should be you know, like talking about that. Let me ask you something. When you thank God for your food, and you should, because you pray, give us this day our daily bread. When you thank God for your food, do you thank him just for the nutritional value that it offers you? Or do you also thank God for the pleasure that comes from eating? It's there by design. It's there by design in both categories. Um... So witness worship, and number three, danger. In verse five, he says, hey, just to be clear, you make sure of this. You get it? There's, nobody has an inheritance in the kingdom um, who's sexually immoral. Now, I'm, I'm on the record. I think everybody in this room has fit that category, including the guy behind this pulpit. He also says in verse 6, let no, one to deceive, let no one deceive you. What he's saying here is you can get this so wrong you don't even know. So what, the, there are two dangers here. Number one, you can get deceived. Our sin nature predisposes us to believe things that are not true. He says, let no one deceive you. It's actually on account of these things that the wrath of God is coming. God is going to rightly address things that are wrong and messed up in the world. And one of these is this area, this broad area. And number two, you get left out. It's like Jesus saying, I never knew you. Listen, if this is who you are, if this is what you live for, you don't have an inheritance with Christ and with God in their kingdom. So why do we need to talk about it? Well, listen, a failure to talk about it leaves the world to define something that, that is precious, but that it has no capacity to adequately define. And it takes something that's a, that's a gift from God, a part of everyday life, and if we don't talk about it, it leaves people vulnerable, naive, and confused on something that by God's design is intended to be a gift. If we don't talk about it, people are in danger. If we don't talk about it, you're vulnerable. That's why we have to talk about it. Okay, so given that, so we do need to talk about it. Follow-up question then is, well, what should we say? Right? If we're if we're gonna you know chat about it, I I think the best thing to do is to look at the arc of the passage here. If you look at the arc of the passage, it goes something like this: it goes imitation, purity, meaning sexual purity, and light. Right? And there's this normal kind of arc through it. Paul is doing something in particular here: imitation, sexual purity, and light. And the first is imitation. He's saying. You're called to be an imitator. You're called to reflect something greater than you. This is in verses 1 and 2. And so he says it this way, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. 
You know, I remember as a kid, my dad, I think I've talked about this some, but I would, I would see my dad, you know, Grady, and uh, he'd be talking to guys or whatever, and my, my dad had, you know, good friends and whatnot, and they'd be out in the front yard. They'd be talking, and uh, just, I'd, I'd watch the way my dad would stand, you know, like if he, if he stood, if he leaned on something. I was like, oh, you know, i got to learn to lean on things, right? Or, you know, he'd get this, there's a certain kind of grass, I don't know what it's called in Oklahoma, where you can pull the, the stem out, take the end off, and my dad would put it in his mouth, like a little straw or toothpick or something like that. And, you know, I'd, like he'd squat down and he'd be chatting and everything. You know, I'd squat down, I'd get lightheaded. But anyway, he'd put that thing in his mouth and I'd be like, oh, well, you know, that's what you got to do. You got to put this like stalk of, you know, you know, grass in your mouth and put it in there. And I was like, that's right. And it'd be like, tastes like grass. I mean, what's... <laughs> it was a big deal. It's a natural thing as a kid to see your dad and to go, I... like there are aspects of him that embody the best of what it means to be a man. I want to be like my dad. Children do that. You know, you find yourself as you get older that, you know, I mean, it's the, it's the lie that you tell yourself. You grow up and you leave the house and you're like, I'm not going to be like my mom and dad. And then you hit like 30 and you're like, wait, ooh, wait a minute. I mean, I'm seeing some things show up, right? It's like, I, and then you start like the gopher game where you take something and you're trying to beat the heads of the gopher down, you know, anything that looks like mom and dad or whatever. And then you hit like 40 or 45 and you're like, oh no, this is over. We are, as God's children, supposed to reflect his glory. We are, as people redeemed, bought by Jesus. It says that in verse 2. And walk in love. Here's the second part of the invitation. You want a human example of it? The God-man comes down. Walk in love as Christ loved and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You want to know how to live your life in such a way that God looks at you and says, I'm pleased. Well, you walk the same path that Jesus walked. You're called to imitation. You don't have, there's, there's nothing more noble. You don't have a higher calling than to reflect the glory of God in your life. And that's what he's saying here. You know something that you do as a believer? That what you do shows up and you live for the glory of God. That's you. That's what you're called to do. Now, you could ask the question, okay, what do verses 1 and 2 have to do with the rest? You know, like sex. Well, you live in a land of broken promises. You've probably broken some yourself. And to be faithful is to act like God. To protect intimacy with a promise is to act like God. To love another for their best interest instead of loving them to leverage your own is to follow Christ and to love like him. Called the imitation. It's, it's a great honor. It's what, it's, a, it's what you do in terms of just showing people what is God like? Somebody looks at you, they get a little taste of what the culture of your family is just because they see how you operate, like your mannerisms and what you're about. It represents something of the culture of where you came from. And it's true with a child of God, right? So, imitation. Second, sexual purity. In verses 3 through 6. Now, God has an opinion on this. First of all, sex is a positive to be celebrated. We've covered this. Verse 4, be thankful. So, sex is good. In the Bible, uh, it is unabashed, unembarrassed, unapologetic about the goodness of sex. This is by God's design. 
He created them male and female. He told them, this God told them, be fruitful and multiply. And the description is the two became one. And here, Paul says, be thankful. God designed it good, and he designed it to be good in your life. But notice this. While that's true, and you can see it all through Scripture, that isn't the emphasis here. The emphasis here is warning. Another, and this, this happens a lot. Where the gift is great, distortions of it do more damage. See that where it goes to the core of who you are? You're made male and female, right? You're made sexual in general. That's the default. That's there by design. And where that's distorted, damage that comes out of that tends to go deeper. So the emphasis here is warning. There is sin to be avoided in verses 3 through 4. And the application is very broad. What he's, what he's really saying here is that it covers every sphere. It covers everything. So you remember that place where Jesus said, oh, okay, listen, you've, you've heard it said. It goes back to the Ten Commandments. Um, don't commit adultery. That's the wrong thing to do. It's a sin. He says, but I say to you, even if you look on a woman with lust in your heart, that's wrong. That's a sin because what you've done is you've, uh, in some ways what you've done is you've tried to hide the act that you desire the most. And so he goes to what you think and what you process in your heart. Just that the application isn't just what you do with your body. It's what you do in your mind. And he's doing the same thing here. Uh, it's broad too. It covers everything uh, uh, as well here. So there's conduct, sexual immorality and all impurity. That's broadly whatever you do with your body. And then thought, covetousness, that's where you, you look out there and you, and you go like, ah, well, I'd rather have this thing than what I have or what I don't have. You can do that with people. You see this sometimes. You see, you see people go like, ah, you know, my, my marriage is complicated, so I wish I had that one. I wish I had that guy or I wish I had that gal. Covetousness. Desiring something that is not yours and in this context, sexually. It refers to that as idolatry, right? It's the idea that you would put everything on that, or even words. He says there should be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. It shouldn't be any of that. That's out of place. What he's saying here is this covers everything. This covers what you do, how you think, and what you process in your heart. And uh, that makes sense because what you think and say and what you act on come from somewhere. And so there's no safe immorality, not even in your mind. That's what he wants you to know. Um, your words come from somewhere. It comes from a heart that generates conduct. Right? So there's no safe place. And the reasons for that, once again, are danger. Think about it. He says, verse 5, look at it just so you can see it straight. He says at the end of that, this kind of person has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And in verse 6, he says, don't be deceived. God stands against this, and his wrath is coming against this. Why is this so dangerous? You know, and the, the question is, you mean beyond God's wrath? As if that weren't enough? This is sex is meant to be chalk so full of blessing that its distortions create deep vulnerabilities in us. So that by what is supposed to deliver by God's design, it no longer is capable of doing that the more you distort it. 
So then you can't operate on a real human level. Listen, I told you I've been a pastor for a long time. And um, I see people struggle. I see people succeed, but I see people struggle. I've seen people go down so deep in sexual sin that they can't properly orient themselves to reality and God's design. It's not, and here's the trick. They got what they wanted all along the way. See what I mean? They, they always manipulated and figured out how to get what they wanted all the way. All to find that the conclusion it led them to didn't really take them where they wanted to go. That's why. Jesus once said, listen, here's this hyperbole, but he said, if your eye offends it, uh, I offend you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. What he's saying is that when it comes to the threats to your soul, there's a radical step that you've got to take and you've got to be willing to fight. And if this is an area for you, listen, but you failed nine times, toughen up, fight, get back up and fight. Rather than define tomorrow by what you did yesterday, repent. There is grace offered, but not to lies. There is grace offered. Jesus is that powerful and that good, but not to playing around. You have to actually be honest. If you want to be forgiven, a prerequisite to that is saying, I have sinned. There is no forgiveness where there is no sin, right? So Jesus says, listen, you got to fight. And maybe what some of you need to hear more than anything else I say this morning is stop feeling sorry for yourself and to look to somebody who's uh, more powerful than you and better than you and ask for grace because you're going to need it. If you don't and you fight and fail on your own, it's going to beat the daylights out of you. And again, you're not going to be able to orient yourself to what is real by design that God made. You're going to miss out on a good gift. Okay, anyway, sexual purity. This is you. So imitation, sexual purity, and then finally ends the passage with light. Metaphor. Basically, this is supposed to be you. There's an obvious conclusion in verse 7 that's something of a bridge in this passage. He says, therefore, do not participate with them. In other words, listen, the whole world is acting this way and they live for something else. This is true in our day and age. And what he's saying is, while you see this is going on, they don't have the capacity to understand nor define nor navigate the realities and the great power of sex. And you can't participate with them. They can't define this for you. You actually need God and creation to be able to define this properly. So let's get the message. I don't have time to go just like straight through. But I'm going to give you four things here. First is this. We see it in verse 11. Darkness cannot be fruitful. Look at verse 11, how he describes it. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Darkness doesn't have that power. It can't produce anything worthwhile. It can't produce anything enduring. It doesn't have that power. It never leads you where you want to go. It's no way to live. So question for you this morning. Did you get out? I mean out of darkness. It's no way to live. We want everyone to get out. There is a way out. There is a light that we're going to point you to. But come out. And if you go like, well, then everybody will know that I've been in the darkness. Get in line, man. There's nobody who knows Jesus who didn't step out of darkness into light, okay? 
Darkness cannot be fruitful. It is impossible. Number two, light is not just something we do, though it is that. It is something we are. Look at verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. One time Jesus said, listen, let your light shine. But before that, what he said is, you are the light of the world. God has a role in what people see because he's placed you here. You're to illuminate something about God, the glories of God and the truth of God. So let your light shine so that they'll see. And what is it that they see? They see God because of what they see God do in you. Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, he says it this way, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There's a, the way you live for Jesus is supposed to be a conduit to how people see what God is doing in the world and they see a redemptive reality that Jesus has accomplished for us. Number three, light exposes what the reality is and though this can be upsetting, it has to happen for transformation to take place. Listen, this is a controversy that gets raised. Big topic today. You can't listen to mainstream media, off-the-beat media, analysis, uh, cultural, uh, cultural uh, analysis. It shows up in major sports. It shows up, uh, you get preached to in just about every movie. Anything that you could watch. And this creates controversy. Now, what ought to motivate us is less power and more love. But the controversy is unavoidable. All you got to do is just say it straight. The controversy is when we're motivated by love, justified by the outcome, because you see what he says here, anything that becomes visible is light. In other words, when the person sees this and they don't shrink back into darkness, what do you do? You go to God. Four, Jesus is that first light that raises us from ruin. Verse 13, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. How is this even possible, right? He says, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper. He's describing somebody who doesn't see. They're in a slumber. Arise from the dead. Somebody who's incapacitated, they're gone, and Christ will shine on you. More than sex is at stake. Jesus is the one who lifts you up. So this is you that he's calling you to. Imitation, you don't have anything more noble or higher than that. Sexual purity is a way, one aspect of you doing that, and light. Then there's a role in our witness that the world sees, and it's a transformational role in our world. Now here's a problem, very important problem, because we're living it out this very minute in this very room. And that is what to do about them. Right? All the people who say all the crazy things. The big push here is this. Be the church in the world. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's not lecturing the world. Be the church in the world. So Ephesians 5 isn't something that we're supposed to necessarily send out on flyers to everybody so that they'll act accordingly. His real concern is that the church, people like us, aren't living this out. Be the church in the world. So if that's the case, then what do we do about them? I don't mean that like 
to, to sound so demeaning, but it, it's, it's like this scenario in which um, you know, all, everything that uh, comes up in the subject of sex is really fluid and up to interpretation and redefinable these days. So let me just point out something. It is weird uh, to lead with how you like your sex as an ultimate identity. Hi, I'm Stace. I like my sex like this. That's who I really am. You go to the core of who I am. This is how I like my sex. That's strange. As though there's no humanity uh, apart from that. Our real tension is in this room, though. And the world's going to do what the world's going to do. And it shouldn't shock us that the world is confused. Because they're trying to define something that God has given apart from God. They just can't do it. But in this room, we're a little bit like two parents of two different minds. You ever see that? Like you have, you have these two parents and they've got a kid and they're trying to figure out what to do with the kid, right? And you, you have the hardliner and the softy. And the hardliner's like, well, you know, we're just like strict and we've got to lay down the law and these kids won't learn if we don't do this, right? And so, like, got to give them the business. And you got the softy over here going like, well, you know, but, I mean, we just want them to know we love them and we've got to understand they're just kids and, you know, that sort of thing. And what, what they do is whenever you talk to them, it's rare that the hardliner goes, yeah, I just think this is the right way to parent. Or the softy goes, well, yeah, I just think we... What they almost always do, when you talk to the one, the hardliner says, well, you know, i got to compensate for what softy over there is doing. Somebody's got to lay down the law. And you talk to softy, and he or she is like, well, you know, I mean, I just, you need a little room, and they, they got to grow, and they need to know we love them. And what, the, what is their aim? Their aim is almost always to compensate for the failure of the other. And what they do is they provide their kids with two really dysfunctional parents who end up in therapy, right? You know, the, the parents and the kids. In this room, when it comes to the them, the world, and their ideas on sex, we've got hardliners and we've got softies. And the hardliners, and this makes my job, like I'm whining, makes my job a little tough. Because what the hardliners say is, you know, stand up and speak for who we are and tell them straight. And the softy says, well, I mean, you know, we need to offer them grace, right? They need to know we love, we don't want to offend. Not either or, but both and. Grace and defiance. And you're going to need both. Grace and defiance. To the hardliner, grace is not weakness. Grace tells the truth about what's wrong and answers it honestly and redemptively. Grace is not weakness. Do you need a little grace? Some of you do. Listen, um, to not offer grace as the church is to discount truth. To the softy, it's not grace if some standard isn't violated. Right? So we need to say it straight. Sex should be exclusively between one man and one woman who are covenant, uh, covenanted to remain devoted to each other in a marriage relationship. This passage uses big words like wrath and expose. The trend out there, the arguments in the world, are not about equality. They're bullying. They're about power. 
and it takes defiance. You got to stand up sometimes and just say, you know what? No, this is not what I believe. That's not true. It's not, not even a good argument. You know, sometimes you want to tell the world, don't use all the arguments, just use the good ones. Now, to the softy who goes like, wait, you're talking about defiance. Should we be defiant? I mean, that sounds wrong. It sounds like rebellion. Yeah, it is. You know when it's right to rebel against the wrong thing? It is right to rebel against evil. You're going to need, if you're going to live faithfully for Jesus, don't fall off the horse on one side or the other. You're going to need grace, and you're going to need defiance. Do you need a little defiance? You're going to need it. Because it's coming. Every time you take a step back, guess who's right in front of you? Every time. Every time you step back, just step back again. Guess who's right in front of you? It will not stop unless you have some courage. And you stand up and you just go like, nope. Listen, offer you grace. It is the only true redemptive grace that is out there. It comes through Jesus. But what is true is true. It's what I believe. as revealed in Scripture. You need a little defiance. The controversy isn't going to go away. All right, here's the other thing. I want to point out this before we close up. The arc of this passage shows us something about the order of things. Something comes first. This is important I, I, to illustrate. I, my brother uh, was in the military. My father-in-law was in the military, something that in our family we're very proud of. Somebody who would sacrifice himself to, for the freedom of other people, right? To protect the freedoms of other people. But wouldn't it be strange if a soldier would make all the sacrifices to go overseas to fight a threat and not, like, defend his own neighborhood? Or to uh, maybe a sillier illustration of this, you know, last year, Kara and I planted a garden. We call it the farm, right? You know, to kind of euphemistically tongue-in-cheek. And what we planted on our farm was uh, squash and zucchini and a couple of other things. And, uh, you know, it's great. We grew a lot of squash and zucchini. The only problem, it turns out, is we just don't like to eat that stuff. <laughs> and so we were, like, kind of evaluating this, like, well, and I mean, Kara said, you know, well, are we, you know, we gotta, what are we going to grow on the farm this year? Like, I don't know, man. I'm like, I could have thrown like 80 squash and zucchinis at neighbors last year. Like, I don't, we couldn't give that stuff away. I guess you don't like to eat it either. Um, so we got to thinking about, well, what do we like to eat? Like, like I like to eat cheeseburgers. And so, so we grew a cheeseburger farm, right? It's got lettuce and onions and tomatoes and, and bacon and cheese slices and all that, right? No, just the, like the first three. Wouldn't it be crazy, though, if, remember I said the order of things is really important. Wouldn't it be weird if we put a fence around our, our farm to protect it against predators like rabbits and whatnot, but we didn't water it? Why protect something that we're not even going to have and that we don't cherish and that we don't take care of? Our reality is that we tend, in places like this, to worry more about national laws than personal purity. And if we don't maintain personal purity, I don't think it matters what they put on the books. We tend to worry, let me say it again, we tend to worry more about national law than we do personal purity. We do need the formal organizational position, but it doesn't matter if we don't live it. 
Remember when Jesus said, your eye first, then your neighbors, judge not lest ye be judged? Um, you know, why judge them? But like, listen, what does he say? Why do you see them? Take the log out of your own eye first, and then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbors. You first, then your neighbor. This section in the ark does that. Sexual purity first to the church, not to the world. He says, this is you. This is me. You live your life devoted to Jesus. This particular example, sexually. And then the section on light, that's the effect that the church has on the world. The light has to be on for it to shine. You can't be doing the darkness and shine the light. You can't play with darkness without becoming darkened. Our great need in this moment, biblically, is not to get everyone to vote right, whatever that may be and however good that might be. It's instead for the members of the church to follow Jesus with defiance and grace in the face of the world. And they're coming. They're here. So let me give you an invitation. I'm nobody. But there is somebody. And all of us are going to answer to him. Put your life before God. Put your life, one theologian, a lot of theologians talk about quorum day. Live your life before the face of God. You are a dustling. I am a dustling. We, we, don't, we don't have the sovereignty to resolve all the issues that we would want to effectuate by the power of our own will. You do not have that capability. You're going to answer to God. You're a dustling. You're created for that. You answer to God. He's good and glorious, and he will bless you. He's that good in spite of your sin, but you're going to have to put your life before him. Calvin Coolidge did a speech years ago, former president, you know, like a good one. It's been a long time since we've had one of those, um, a good one. And he talked about this juxtaposition of believers. Uh, you ought to uh, look up this speech one time at some point. Who at one time were not afraid to lie prostrate before the God of heaven and at the same time have their foot on the neck of a king. I mean, we need that kind of resolve, right? That kind of mindset. You're going to have to put your life before God. It's an invitation in two parts. First, are you in darkness? Come into the light. So we get it. Oh, every, everybody here who's in the light came out of darkness to get here. We came out of darkness because by God's grace, he called us out. Come out of the light, or come out of the darkness, come into the light. Maybe you're saying, well, like, are you saying I've done something wrong? Yes. Get in line, right? It's, but come into the light. It is the only way to live. Literally and figuratively, come to Jesus, who's the light of the war, world. He bore our sins. You can, he forgives. He gives life. He transforms. Come into the light. Uh, come into the light. Come to Jesus, the light of the world. The second thing, do you know Jesus? I find this incredible. He doesn't say, you know, like, shine a light. He says, you are light, so shine. Shine. What the world needs um, is not this major global fix that is coming, but it is not your job. Jesus is going to see to that at the end. What are you called to do? called to live for Jesus now. We need better neighborhoods. We need light that shines and illuminates where we live locally. That's what we're commanded to do anyway for gospel contact. Uh, for gospel contact. Can you change the world? 
I don't know, maybe it's unlikely. But be who Jesus has called you to be. You can do that. And verse 8 will be true. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. In the Lord, walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is to be found in all that is good and right and true. Right? Jesus is worthy of that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great gift. We pray that where there's sin, uh, you would uh, expose that in the person's heart, shine light on that. Uh, by your Spirit, we ask that you draw them in grace to, to put that at your feet, ask for forgiveness, and trust in Jesus to accomplish that. And where we need courage, where we lack it, we pray that you'd be at work in us to stir up to hold together both your grace and your courage to be defiant where there's evil and there's um, evil always leads to tyranny. Help us to represent the freedom in Christ, to cherish that, to live it out so that we have a credible witness. And we ask that you do something we could never do on our own and that is to powerfully work through us so that Jesus is glorified and that our neighbors trust him. And so that they can be saved too, so that they would come out of darkness into light, and so that we would enjoy the light ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.